We are live from the great state of Tennessee. I'm your host, Patrick Simpson, and this is Paranoid, the podcast where we break down conspiracy theories and unsolved mysteries and separate fact from fiction. So today's story of the week is actually relevant to today on the day that the podcast actually comes out, which is Monday, December 21st. If you're not listening on the 21st, you're basically probably going to miss out on this story of the week if you don't know what this is. But for those of you that actually listen on the actual day the episode comes out, you're in luck. If you don't know, it's pretty popular mainly on Twitter. I don't think Facebook's caught up on the news yet. But pretty big astronomical phenomenon is happening today. And it's called the Great Conjunction. And if you don't know what it is, it's not some crazy. Well, the theories behind it are crazy. But basically, what's going to happen today is that Jupiter and Saturn are going to be the closest that has ever been in about 600 years. So what these these great conjunctions, basically, I'm not going to bore you with all the information that goes into it, but basically Jupiter and Saturn are the two slowest moving planets. So when them two get super close together, it rarely happens, so they're called great conjunctions. And these conjunctions actually do happen about every 20 years, but they never actually line up exactly behind each other like they're going to today. So the way it's going to be, if you go outside now, well, if I went outside right now, you're supposedly, you can see Jupiter and Saturn. You can see them, but they're obviously a little bit distance apart. But at nighttime on December 21st, they're going to be like 0.1 of a centimeter apart based on our eyesight. So they're basically going to be right behind each other, basically like an eclipse, basically. And it's supposed to create a giant star. It's supposed to be something pretty cool to see. Like it's going to be a really bright star in the sky. And of course, people at NASA are like, oh, this is big news because we only, this is the only time we'll get to see it in our lifetime. And basically anybody born after today for the next 500 years will won't get to see it. So we're getting to see something that, like I said, only happens every about 600 years as far as this kind of conjunction right behind each other. And the reason why this is interesting, because a lot of crazy, interesting, whatever you want to call them, theories have come about of this. Um, I guess I'll go through the less serious one. Somehow a theory, it started out as a joke and it still is a joke, but some people probably actually believe it. Some people believe that we are going to get certain people have a specific gene that is going to be released during this great conjunction and they're going to wake up tomorrow morning with superpowers. So, you know, I think this is supposed to be, like I said, this thing was some kind of joke, but some people are waking up tomorrow, well, today in your world, that they're going to wake up today with superpowers. And maybe they are. Who knows? Could be 100% right. Some believe that this is going to release a crazy gene in some of us, and maybe it will. Now, some believe that this is the end of the world, because remember, the, the world was supposed to end on December 21st, 2012. But it didn't, obviously, because we're still here. Or at least we think we're still here. 
But if you remember, I don't even remember what episode it was, but basically time is not what we think it is. I think from like 1624 to like some other year, I can't remember. Um, it was so long ago. But basically there's this theory that it's not really 2020. Our years are off. There's like a random little period of time in the 1600s that there's no history, no accounting for, no nothing. And we basically just picked up where we where we left off. Like those people in one random year was like, well, nothing good happened then. We don't want to remember those bad years. So we're just going to say that it's the year 1680 or whatever. And I mean, it's totally possible. I mean, we got people all around the world with no technology, no communication. They all could be on their own system of time. So we really don't know. Like we can't 100% for sure say this is actually the year 2020 because like I said, time is relative and made up in the first place. So anyway, where I'm going with this is you don't know it's really 2020. It could actually really be the year 2012. So the Mayans, who said they predicted the world would end in December 21st, 2012, could technically be right because our time was just off. So that's what some people believe, is that the Mayans weren't, weren't wrong. Our time is just off, and we're actually in the year 2012, and the Great Conjunction is happening on December 21st. So some believe they're going to get superpowers. Some believe that the world is going to end. Then there's another group of people that basically it's a conspiracy or any end of the world type thing, but it is interesting. In the, the Bible, if you don't know the Bible story, people basically, when it comes to the birth of Jesus, which is what Christmas was originally only made for, basically how Mary and Joseph found a place to stay was they basically followed the, I don't even know what they called it. Basically, it's just a gigantic star in the sky. And that's how the three kingsmen found Mary and Joseph. They were in a barn and the three kings were that came to them were looking for Jesus and they were told to follow that bright star in the sky. Now, what is that bright star in the sky? Well, if you line some times up with the birth of Jesus and how often these things happen, it is actually possible that what they were following that night, said December 20th, we don't know exactly, he said we don't claim Jesus was born on December 25th, we just make that date, but... It is around the same time of year, and we don't know what giant star. Some people just think it was just one random star, but it could have been a great conjunction that night that they followed. I mean, is it true? Probably not. But when you do the math, it does kind of line up with around the time of the birth of Jesus. So right now we could be seeing the star that was, or it's not a star, but we could be seeing what the Kingsmen saw on the same night that Jesus was born, but that only happens every 600 years. Kind of interesting.
Like I said, there's a bunch of different other random things going on. But the whole point is, if you didn't know about the Great Conjunction, sunset tonight, go outside, look towards the moon, and you'll see a gigantic bright star, which is Jupiter and Saturn, lined up. So you can take whatever you want. It, it could either just be a one-time phenomenon, life goes on, the world could be ending, you could be waking up with superpowers by the time you listen to this. There's a bunch of different ways that this can go. But either way, now you're aware. So hope for those of you that actually listen, when this episode actually drops, you are ahead of the curve. And as far as these superpowers, I don't know if you just wake up with them or you got to like do some kind of like ritual or like burn some wood. I don't I don't know. No, I didn't really dig much digging into how we actually get these superpowers. But hopefully mine kick in by the time I wake up tomorrow morning. But anyway, like I said, if you're listening today, go ahead and check out the night sky. Maybe in my world, my theory, maybe this is a sign for the aliens to finally show themselves. Probably not. I would say a 0.00001% chance that actually happens. But if there's ever a time, why not be now? So let's see what happens tomorrow night when this star ends up showing up in the sky. But for now, let's go ahead and get into the actual episode for this week. All right. So everybody knows about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. It's probably behind JFK, the most popular presidential assassination. Obviously, this happened not too soon after the Emancipation Proclamation when the slaves were freed. So it's pretty obvious he had a lot of enemies. So this assassination is not surprising in the least. But for the most part, we're told a little bit about this story. John Wilkes Booth goes into this theater while Abraham Lincoln's watching a play, shoots him, he dies, and it's the end of the story. It's basically all we really learn in history class or any kind of books or movies. But there is way more, and I mean way more, to this story. This is something that's even bigger than any movie you've ever seen. You got your crazy movies, Born Identity, Ocean's Eleven, movies about, you know, government plots, group of people getting together to achieve some crazy heist or some crazy something. Sometimes they pull it off, sometimes they don't. But what happened on the night of Abraham Lincoln's assassination blows all of that away because not only is it a true story, but it was a literal overthrow of the American government. And if this had been pulled off, our entire world would be totally different than it is today. So just a little bit of quick background information on John Wilkes Booth. He actually came from a really prominent family this family, he's basically was one of the most popular family of actors. I mean, I wouldn't say the Kardashians, but he was in a very popular family as far as movie actors. I mean, it's really that simple. His brother, Edwin Booth, was like the most popular actor in America at that time. And he had got that from his father, who is... Brutus Booth, and John Wilkes himself was a performer. Um, he was young, 
The ladies loved him. They said he was good looking. And he grew up in Maryland, but did most of his acting in Virginia. But he aligned himself with the South as far as when it came to slavery and states' rights and all that madness that the South was believing in. So he wanted to go fight for the Confederacy, but his mom, who was on the side of the North, begged him and pleaded him not to join in this fight. So he remained in the North during the Civil War. But think about during that time. Imagine being someone that wants to be with the Confederacy, but you told your mom, all right, I'm not going to do it. But not only that, you got to stay in the North with a bunch of people that don't agree with you. And honestly, if you're racist during that time, you're in the North, you see black people more often than you probably would like. So for him, it just was building up this just deep, deep, deep hatred for the North and for Abraham Lincoln. And eventually it got to the point where he just lost it. Like I said, his in his mind, I'm just assuming, I'm just assuming that he thought that the South was going to win and then order would be, be restored. But, of course, this didn't happen. The North won. And he felt like he had to do something about it. So on the morning of April 14th, 1865, John Wilkes Booth, who has said is just absolutely upset that the South lost, learns that the president will be performing, attending a performance of some comedy tour at Ford's Theater, which is near where he lives. So what he does is he gathers a few of his friends who are also, they live in the North, but they have a deep hatred for Abraham Lincoln and for the anti-slavery movement. These people's names are Lewis Powell, who is a former Confederate soldier, and George Astorot, who was a German immigrant who also worked with the Confederacy. So basically, John Wilkes Booth comes up with this super elaborate plan to take down the leading members of the White House who all are a part of this anti-slave movement. So John Wilkes Booth himself was going to take out President Abraham Lincoln. And Lewis Powell was tasked to take out Vice President Andrew Johnson. And George Azarot was tasked to take out the Secretary of State, William Seward. He said, these are the next three in line for the president. So that his plan was to take them out at 10 o'clock that night, all at the same time. We start off with the one that we all know about, the easiest one, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. So Abraham Lincoln sitting in the private box at the Ford Theater, and his wife is there watching it, and Union Officer Major Henry Rathaborn is there. And... I, it's kind of weird because the president's box was basically unguarded. I guess the war was over and they kind of basically they let their guard down. 
So John Wilkes Booth enters and bars the, the outside door from the inside so that nobody can get in. And he basically waits for a moment. Let's say we're at a comedy play. The John Wilkes Booth waits for the moment that would create like a big laugh so that no one could really hear what was going on. So he waits for a funny part of the show. Everybody's laughing. And John Wilkes Booth bursts in and shoots President Lincoln in the back of a head with a 44 caliber gun. Not only that, but he slashed the major in the shoulder with a knife and then jumped from the box to the stage below, breaking his left leg in the fall. But at that time, if you've ever had an injury while your adrenaline's rushing, you don't feel it. But think about that sight. You hear a gunshot. The president gets shot. The guy that does it jumps from the top of the booth. Wow, what a pun. But he jumps from the top of the booth, breaks his leg, and still gets out and leaves. And while committing this attack, John Wilkes Booth, before he shoots, he says, sick temper tyrannus, which means the South is avenged. And that's what he said before shooting Abraham Lincoln. Like I said, he jumps from this little stage, breaks his leg, gets out the door, and his horse is being held from him by who we know. Who do we? I don't know who. Someone was out there holding his horse. He gets on the horse and he takes off into the night. And now he's sitting and waiting for the rest of his men to complete their job. Now, the question is, did they do their job? Well, you know, history, you know the answer. But I'm going to answer it for you anyway. So we start with the second member of this crew, which is Mr. Powell, who was the former Confederate soldier. He is tasked to take out William Seward, the Secretary of State. And Seward's house is literally, like basically almost right across the street from the White House. So what Powell does is he rings the doorbell, claiming to have a prescription for the Secretary of State, who at this time is sick. So it makes sense that someone was gonna show up to bring him his medicine. A servant lets him in, and reaches out to accept the medicine, but Powell says he's under strict orders to deliver it personally. So he begins pushing and urgently trying to get his way upstairs, arguing with the servant along the way, and one of the Secretary of State's sons comes out to figure out what's going on. And the son, obviously realizing something is not right, refuses to let Powell go any further. So Powell pretends to run, but then turns around whips out his gun, and pulls the trigger. Luckily for Powell's son, it misfired, so no shot was actually fired. But Powell basically, once it misfired, just used it to hit him in the head. And he hit him in the head so hard that Powell's son ends up in a coma. So next, Powell turns his attention to the bodyguard. And he also said the gun's not working, so he gets out a knife and he's basically slashing at the bodyguard and gets him out the way. Only the Seward's daughter now stood between Powell and the Secretary of State. 
Thankfully, he doesn't do anything to her. He kind of just jukes her and moves past her easily. And he makes it to the Secretary of State, who I said is bedridden and sick, so can't really get out and defend himself. So he gets to the Secretary of State's bed, jumps on him, and just basically just begins stabbing him like tons of times, just stabbing him and stabbing him, cutting open his cheek and his neck. But despite all of this, Secretary of State does not die. He actually did make it through. Before he could finally inflict that final death blow, the bodyguard and another one of the Secretary of State's sons storms into the room and pulls him off. And Powell, with the blade still in his hand, is able to basically just, he's just, I mean, I'm just picturing the scene. He's just swinging it like your adrenaline's rushing. You're going crazy. You're scared. You're like, why am I doing this? He swings and swings the knife and is able to basically get out of there. And he runs down the house and he does one other man that's standing at the door. I think it's the actual guy that had the medicine. He gets stabbed on the way out just because he's in the way, basically wrong place at the wrong time. But thankfully, nobody in there actually did die. It was a pretty brutal scene, but... No one, including the Secretary of State, who got stabbed like a hundred times, they all did live. So the problem for Powell is that he was supposed to have a, a runaway guy. There's supposed to be someone waiting outside for him to guide him to safety, but he hears his basically getaway car, getaway horse. The guy that has that hears wild screams going on in the house, so he runs away while all this is going on. So Powell runs outside, expecting to have his getaway car, and there's nothing. There's nobody out there. So he ends up just running off into the night. And from what we know, he ends up spending the night in a nearby cemetery. Because obviously nobody's going to go to the cemetery at night. So he goes to the cemetery, and he's freaked out, lost, has nowhere to go, and ends up spending the night in a graveyard and that's how his night goes so and like i said these are all happening at exactly 10 o'clock so at 10 o'clock the president is shot the secretary of state is stabbed like a hundred times so we don't they don't know at the time that the secretary of state survives but at the time you don't think he's going to make it so you think you're two for two so the last man remaining is the former German spy, Azardot. And he's sitting, during this time, he's sitting at a bar at the Kirkwood House, which is a five-story hotel. And this guy is way out of his league. First off, he stays at this hotel, and he rents the room there under his own name because he's an amateur. So he's sitting at the bar, and he's just going to town, drinking alcohol, trying to get some liquid courage before going upstairs to get to kill Vice President Johnson. And Johnson is staying at that hotel because, like I said, the election just happens, and the inauguration is getting ready to happen. So Vice President is just at this five-star hotel waiting for inauguration day. And that night, ironically... The vice president is alone and unguarded in his suite. 
He's literally just a sitting duck, just sitting there in his suite with no one to protect him. Yet, Azardot, who also has a gun and a knife, after drinking all his alcohol, he goes up and walks up to the door, but he can't do it. He doesn't even knock. He walks up to the door and he freaks out and he leaves. So instead, he goes outside and begins drunkenly water wandering around the city and he checks into another hotel at about 2 a.m. The next morning, he sells his gun and goes home back to Maryland, unaware that the investigators at this time had already found the gun and knife in his room that he is, he bought under his actual name. He didn't realize, I guess, I don't know what he thought, but it was a pretty easy investigation on his end. They, cause everything is left there at the hotel. And they also find some checks that belong to John Wilkes Booth, which is helps them connect Azardot to John Wilkes Booth. So eventually he is arrested and he confesses his role to the plots and he basically snitches. He, I mean, this guy was obviously the weak link. He was only 20 years old. He was way out of his league. So they were basically able to use him to put all the pieces together. So now that the feds have all the information that they need to put all the pieces together, a massive 12-day manhunt begins for Harold and John Wilkes Booth. Them two meet together in Maryland, and they somehow continue to evade the police. And like I said, this goes on for 12 days before they are eventually tracked down at a Virginia farmhouse. And what exactly happens at this farmhouse is not really clear because we don't know who shot the first shot. But basically, John Wilkes Booth was shot to death there, whereas Harold surrendered unharmed. So it didn't really matter because a few days later, a military jury finds him guilty and him, along with Booth's girlfriend and Azardot are all hanged at the same time. So it's a different time. Capital punishment is a huge thing, especially when it comes to killing the president. So John Wilkes Booth doesn't never really serves his justice because he goes down at the farmhouse, but everybody else is eventually hung together on July 7th of 1865. Now, there's not really a conspiracy to this story. The small conspiracy is, did John Wilkes Booth actually pull this crazy plan off by himself? How, like, first, there's a lot of things that go into this. First off, how did they know the room number that the vice president was in in that hotel? How did they get that information? Number two, how did they know where Secretary of State lived and that he was bedridden. How did there be no security for the president at this comedy show? Like, I get the war is over and you're maybe a little relaxed, but there's no such. I mean, it is a different time, I understand. But 
there's still no such thing as there not being one security guard by the door. Like there's nobody there. And on top of that, remember, not only do they know where Andrew Jackson, um, Andrew Jackson is, his exact hotel room, there's also no guard on duty that night. So on this one specific night that they're planning this crazy, massive, basically overthrow of the government, nobody is watching the president or the vice president. And as I say all the time, coincidences happen, perfect timings happen, but that's not what my show is about. My show is about conspiracies. So I have to believe that there was a bigger conspiracy at play here. Like John Wilkes Booth is just this random dude. How does he have the ability to almost, he almost pulls this off. They basically went two for three. They technically went one for three, but at least two actually went through. And the thing is, if the guy wasn't, if they would have hired somebody different and the guy wasn't so scared, Andrew Jackson was a sitting duck in a room with no guard. It would have been three for three. And the reason why this is important is because the president pro temper, who is the fourth in line, basically was against reconstruction and against anti-slavery. So if they actually pull this off, we don't know what America or what the world, we don't know what anything looks like now. We don't know how much they could have overturned, how much they could have changed. I mean, this, like I said, is bigger than just one random guy, one random actor taking down Abraham Lincoln. Somebody, somebody high up, I, I, I don't know who, I don't know my history enough, but somebody high up helped in this attempt. It's just, it's the only explanation. And like I said, this, the fact that they were able to put all this together, it was a giant plan. Basically the South lost and they were like, all right, where do we can't win a war, but we can win a battle in the branches of government if we take out the people above us that are basically anti-slavery. So it could have been a governor, could have been senator, could have been speaker of the house. I mean, there's a bunch. I mean, it could have a bunch of different people. It could have been. I mean, we're talking about the end of slavery. I mean, we went to war over this. So who's to say after they lose the war that they just go out without a fight? They this was probably a last ditch effort by the entire big heads of the South to basically take out the top three members of government that are anti-slavery. Except that's basically the conspiracy aspect of it. I just don't believe John Wilkes Booth was able to pull off this crazy plot by himself and get this intel by himself. I believe that this basically was a last Hail Mary effort by the South to take out the people that basically ruined their way of living. I mean, we know slavery was how these people made their money in... I mean, it was literally a way of life. So just because they lost the war doesn't mean that they were just going to go out sad or go out without a fight. It was this was their basically their last ditch effort. And like I said, this could have changed the entire 
it's going to change everything. I mean, I don't, it's hard to really understand because we don't really know. I mean, we're just guessing, but the entire, our entire world, I mean, not, I mean, on top of slavery, just reconstruction, things that happened prior to this. I mean, this could have set our country back hundreds of years. But thankfully, this 20-year-old kid was too scared to do it. And thankfully, the Secretary of State survived. And though things obviously weren't great, we're not going to go into that. Obviously, the world wasn't still great after this. But it's better than the path of going back in reverse into slavery. So these three men, with the help of who knows, almost pulled off a history-changing event. But that one guy, actually it's two guys. There was a one guy that was supposed to be the getaway driver. He freaks out and leaves. The guy that's supposed to take out Andrew Jackson, who honestly may have had the actual most important role, gets freaked out. Like I said, thankfully it happened. But it goes to show you, everybody's a tough guy. Everybody thinks that they can pull that trigger until it's actually time. Every plan is only as strong as its weakest link. That is all I got for the story of the night of Abraham Lincoln's assassination. Really hope you enjoyed this episode. Maybe learned a little bit more about our history that your teacher didn't tell you in high school. Very fascinating. It's not much of a conspiracy, but still a pretty cool story just to know about in our history. Things that you really will never probably hear except for from me. So really hope you learn something new. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore Patrick Simpson. I say this every week, but y'all really are awesome with the engagements and tagging me on different things. Like I said, I try to acknowledge everything. I don't can't hard to see everything because I miss everything, but I'm not ignoring you. Don't be afraid to double send, double message. Really appreciate it. I say just about every week, I'm getting something and I'm writing down and I'm like, I'm doing this episode next. So even though if you've given me a suggestion, I haven't done your episode yet. It's coming. I promise. I'm only doing this for y'all. So any suggestions you give me, if I haven't, if I can find enough research on it, I'm going to do it. So like I said, I really appreciate all the engagement. If you haven't subscribed, just go ahead and hit that button real quick. We can get the episodes as soon as they drop. If you're on Apple or iTunes, appreciate it if you could leave a quick, honest review. Helps get seen. Helps people know that... I at least give out somewhat entertaining information. Or if you just think I completely am terrible, say that too. That way I can figure out how to get better. Um, That's it. I'm not going to ask you for a five-star. Five-star would be great. But whatever you honestly believe, it will help me grow as time goes on. And we'll be back next Monday with a very new episode. My name is Patrick Simpson, and this is Paranoia.